All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. If this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up. We hope that it's sharing and it builds you up and <laughs> builds us up. I'm Tori J. I'm, I'm Lex Michael. Are you sure? <laughs> yep, I'm sure. That's, that's who we are. <laughs> Uh, and this week we are joined by uh, Dave Chai. Oh, hey. We already got a fit of the giggles. And we're ready oh, to go. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. After nailing that intro. I mean, perfect. I don't know if I can go on. Take one, done, Tori. That's what they call Podcast you. Podcast in me, muse, and through me, tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending, <laughs> Tari J host of the missing outcast put that on my tombstone because i'm dead <laughs> <laughs> awesome uh, this week we are talking about oh brother where art thou mm. the 2000 coen brothers film loosely based on the odyssey by homer uh star studded we got george clooney john Turturro, tim blake nelson charles dunning mm. michael blowakuo um, John Goodman, Holly Hunter, and a series of other people. Stephen Root. Oh yes, I forget about Stephen Root. Hell yeah. Oh, you gotta call out Stephen Root when you see the Stephen. You're Root. right. Love You're him. right. My bad. There's so many people in this movie, and it's it's such a, a fun romp. It gets heavy. It stays light. There's some almost hangings a few times, which is a bummer. But Dave, you brought this to us, so. Why don't you pitch it? Oh, let me tell you about a movie that I think you should see. It's called Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It's about these three chumps. They're coming out of the chain gang. They're running away. They're running away from the chain gang. Why? Because they got some gold. They got some hidden gold. And they're going to get it. They're going to get it before there's a flood and it buries it and they can never get it anymore. Or do they? Or is there gold? <laughs> Maybe it's just something made up by the head guy, Mr. Everett Ulysses, who's based off of the Odyssey. It's George Clooney. He just wants to see his wife and keep his wife out of the clutches of some miscreant. On the way, they encounter many, many folk who get in their way and also help them. And there, it's it's an odyssey, but it's also southern magic because each of the characters <laughs> they find has some connection to some sort of southern folklore of some sort, and it's mixed up with all the Greek magic mythism. Even though everything that happens could happen in real life, and there's not really a lot of magic except for kind of a sense of spiritualism throughout the whole thing. And it's also basically a musical because there's so much music that's really good, all folk music, all kind of Appalachian kind of folk music. The soundtrack is amazing. I think it's won like several Grammys and it has some great lip syncing by George Clooney and other folk mm -hmm. and the most the most soulful Grand Wizard KKK song you'll ever hear. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's just an enjoyable film. Little sense of melancholy, but like just the right amount. It's like just like a mm, just like a little dash of melancholy throughout a <laughs> throughout a delightful romp. Yeah. First to use sepia tone that maybe ruined a lot of films after it, but it looks good in this one. Uh, and, and it's just a good, it's a good film. So watch it. Coen brothers. You can't miss. So how did you first come in contact with this movie? I definitely watched it in the year 2000. In the year 2000. Definitely in the theaters. Uh, I think I went with, with my friends in high school, probably my bandmates, because I was in a garage band called id. ID period. Get it? Freud. <laughs> and we hung out at the mall a lot. And so I know this was kind of my going to the, probably going to see it at the mall, at the Solomon Pond Mall in Berlin, Massachusetts. And uh, I just loved it right away because I've always been a Coen Brothers fan, as most like people like film cinephiles my age and gender and ethnicity tend to like the Coen brothers <laughs> so i just like uh was really excited about a brother Arthur when it came out i loved it i think it's maybe one of my favorite Coen brothers films even though there's a lot of good ones i just like it when they go full out fun and have a bit more of a, a comedy bend to things but this also has like yeah this also really has them flexing their story chops. I was surprised rewatching it how well it moves. It moves super fast. Mm -hmm. And it also has like all these characters that are established like right away, these unforgettable lines. And the music is just so good. I remember getting the soundtrack like right away after it. And I have it on vinyl right now. And it's just, it's one of those films that make you have like kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's very welcoming and warm after it. And I yeah. think it's because. It's a very diverse film in a lot of ways. Like it takes you through this kind of epic journey, but does it in a way that has great little moments of of uh, intrigue and silliness and kind of approaching disaster. And you feel like because it has a melancholy bend to it, it feels like it could end in a way that's not totally happy. So you're happy when it does. You know, yeah. it's like one of those kind of perfect combo of a movies that way i would agree i think that there is a lot to love like a lot of small character moments uh the way that the everyone interacts with one another is always it's a combination of very heightened but also relatable and i think that just even if you're not familiar with like what it's based on i think you can still enjoy all of the different aspects of it like i think when i first saw it well this is my first time seeing it all the way through oh. the first time i had come in contact with it i think i was near a park that was doing a like one of those outdoor big screen mm -hmm. screenings and so i had seen from the sirens to the kkk rally and i didn't know anything about it but those two moments i was like is this is this based on the Odyssey? And then like I did a bunch of <laughs> yeah. research about it and I was like, oh, that's really cool, but never really got a chance to like actually see it. I think it was never on a streaming platform I owned at any given moment. But I, I'm glad I got to really experience it from top to bottom because I think that it 
goes on such a journey, has so many different like like set pieces from one place to another, and also just has like a like a, a nice levity about it. Lex, had you seen this before? Yes, I'd seen this before. So this movie came out in 2000. So this would have been most likely the movies that the Coens had either out or coming out at the time that I discovered the Coen brothers. Um, and I, I would have seen it. I would have seen it when I was about what, probably 10, 11 years old. Cause that's, that's, I think the age I was when it came out. And at that age, I had no frame of reference for the Odyssey uh, or any of Homer's works. I was just responding, uh, Dave, to a lot of the factors that you were sort of uh, highlighting. Interesting. Um, the kind of jauntiness, the the way the thing moves at a clip, the, mm. the performances in this thing. The thing has such a wonderful cast. And it was, too, really interestingly placed uh, on the filmographies of a lot of people involved. Like for the Coens, this was the movie they made coming off of Big Lebowski, which now, of course is such a cherished, celebrated movie that the term like cult doesn't even really apply anymore. But when it first came out, it was not as well received. People didn't know what to do with it. You know, they're like, what What the hell is this? It's like a noir, but it's a really stupid stoner noir. I don't get it. And so that coming off of Fargo, which was massively well received. So then they make Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is this really nice, at the time, right. this really nice little professional oasis for them in between Big Lebowski and what would sort of come to be considered like a bit of a fallow period for the Coens. Because after this, they did a run of Man Who Wasn't There. They did Intolerable Cruelty. They did The Lady Killers before coming back with No Country for Old Men and everybody kind of getting back on the same page as far as, oh my God, this is like the greatest American movie of blah, 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 blah years. But I think uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou never needed to go through any kind of critical reappraisal because it was pretty much uh it was well received and embraced pretty much immediately right. on its release and i think it was also something that was real good for clooney at that point in his career as well because it was only a few years earlier that he had played his first lead role in a movie which was um from dust till dawn in 96 and then the next year he did batman and robin which was kind of you know a, a bit of a black mark on everybody's filmography at that point yeah so then you know in the years between batman and robin and this movie he was sort of building back up his bona fides as a movie star again doing things like uh, you know, the Peacemaker um, showing up in a tiny part in a thin red line doing Three Kings um, doing, per I think, Perfect Storm was the one he did right before this. And so when did he do Out of Sight? Because I feel like Out of Sight was the one that I was like, oh, damn. Oh, yeah. He's out of Sight was, um, oh, God, was 98. I want to say so like, yes, yeah. that was that okay. was part of that process as well. So now like you're at a point where this movie comes out and like I think Ocean's Eleven was the next year. This is sort of the point at which George George Clooney like fully formed movie star emerges. And then, you know, you buttress Clooney with, um, you know, John Turturro and Tim Blake Nelson and John Goodman and Charles Durning. And so as a kid without necessarily having any real frame of reference for the source material or even for the greater bodies of work of all of the people who worked on this thing. Yeah, it was really easy to be taken with the story as presented. Um, Dave, obviously, as you mentioned, the soundtrack is dope as hell. And this was not the first time they had worked with T-Bone Burnett, but I think this was the first time they worked with him as music producer. I think it was like he did some musical yeah. archiving on Big Lebowski, but they'd work with him again on, I, I think, uh, Lady Killers and Inside Lewin Davis. And of course, T-Bone Burnett would go on to do music production on a ton of other projects. But those were the things that really spoke to me when I was that age. And of course, it was just an additional springboard, like discovering 
this movie and you know Fargo probably and probably Big Lebowski like right around the exact same time was really sort of my springboard into becoming yes Dave as you put it one of the very cliche straight white males of approximately my age that is super into the Coen brothers yeah it's easy to do that and it's also great this is also like George Clooney at his most character actor which I kind of love to see him do. He kind of like, mm-hmm. you could tell that's what he wants to be. And it, it, I think him and Brad Pitt are both two people that are like, almost have that golden handcuffs of the leading men when they really just mm-hmm. want to be like the goofy side character. Right. And so they love it. You see them like eating it up with a spoon whenever they get like a silly roll kind of like this and they can dive into it. Well, and the Coen's uh, burn after reading is a perfect example of an instance where they both kind of get to show up and be really ridiculous and over the top. But also too, yeah. you say like his most character actory, this also to me, and yes, it's partially just the the mustache, but this is also, I think him and his most Clark gable Like I always think of uh, George Clooney as our modern day Cary Grant. And, and I think he is that, but in this movie especially, very much are Clark Gable as well. And I had not really thought too much about that previously. Could just be the mustache. Right. I think it also I think he also has that Cary Grantness, especially when you watch like Arsenic and Old Lace, which Cary Grant hates. He's actually talked about how much he hates his acting in Arsenic and Old Lace because it is him at his most like, mm, oh <laughs> and he's kinda he's so big in that, but that's kind of what George Clooney is doing. You kind of get the same feeling, even with Cary Grant like bringing up baby. And another thing to remember is, while this is based off of the Odyssey, the Coen brothers have like a deep love for like Preston Sturgis and Capra and all of that stuff. And in fact, the the name "O Brother Where Art Thou" comes from the uh, Preston Sturgis film Sullivan's Travels, where uh, mm-hmm. that's about like a a director who doesn't want to do comedies anymore, doesn't want to do anything that he thinks that's like kind of lowbrow and he wants to do something that's important and something that like really registers with the depression because they're living through the depression and he wants to do that. So he goes off and pretends to be a bum, meets like Lana Turner on the way, but is all because he's trying to make this film called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm. And that's his goal for the film. But the film's supposed to be like kind of a heavy, depressive story. And then by the end of it, he realizes what he wants to do is more comedies. So it has like this nod towards uh, Sullivan's travels with the title and also with a couple of the scenes, but we can get to that later, that kind of are references to Sullivan's travels while also referencing the Odyssey at the same time. So Coen Brothers has a great kind of like double folded, oh, we're putting a lot of stuff we love into this. Right. Well, it's interesting to hear you sort of make that connection between um, the sort of striving to create something that is born of a place of complete authenticity and also where it coincides where it intersects with references to Homer's Odyssey, they come back to exactly that a handful of years later when they did Inside Lewin Davis, which I think is super interesting. So clearly that is something that they right. weren't able to shake out of their system. Uh, but also, I feel like it's worth noting that uh, apparently they had not actually like they were big fans of Homer's Odyssey, but had not actually read the thing. In fact, it sounds like while they were making Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It might have been uh, Tim Blake Nelson and Tim Blake Nelson alone on that set who had actually read the source material. Despite the, despite <laughs> that, uh, big fans. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it's Veronica Lake 
that he meets in Sullivan's travels, not Lana Turner. That was a big okay. oversight on me. <laughs> Veronica Lake. That's true. Sure you would have got in. so people, many tweets. People know. Those lake heads out there. Ooh. One last piece of trivia before we go to our break is that George Clooney uh, accepted the, the offer for this movie without reading the script, sent it to his uncle to record it, which makes me believe that George Clooney doesn't know how to read. Say, <laughs> he does this for every script where he has someone else record it. Because like he didn't, I guess his uncle being like, real Baptist left out all the dams and, and shits and things. And he didn't know until they started shooting. So I'm thoroughly convinced that he's never read a day in his life. Maybe now, but like up until this point, not a single word. <laughs> he is too handsome to read that. He might get like crow's feet from squinting his eyes. And yeah, stuff. that's true. That's how he stays so handsome. That's our issue is we read too much. And that's why I'm only going to speak for myself. Uh, I read too much. And so that's why I'm not George Clooney handsome. Yeah. Right. I'm, I am George Clooney handsome. And that's because I, I don't know how to read. I don't know how to read. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta max out so, somewhere. We, we min max. That's the only way we do our stats. That's also why he married, like, didn't he marry like a yes. genius? doctor or something so that's he's hiding behind the oh of course a very smart woman. that's how you got to do it i think that this is a good time to lower that sweet spoiler wall oh you guys remember dave uh, installed it the the manual spoiler wall yep yeah. Ooh, those are the those are the cats we use to test the dogs. Now it's down. Oh my gosh. But if you dare to venture through the gates in our spoiler wall. Uh, make sure that you have either seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It is available on all, like, well, not all streaming platforms, but it's available on streaming platforms such as Amazon, Google Play Store, uh, iTunes. It's available on YouTube movies. So uh, check it out before you venture through this gateway. And, uh, or if you're like, motherfucker, I know uh, the Odyssey, so I'm going to go anyway, uh, which. Look, that's you're entitled to do so. Yes, so. so. Just be warned, you know. All, all ye who enter shall be spoiled. So while you are reaching for your dial to either turn this up or turn this off, please consider going to Apple Podcasts, leaving us a rating, a review. It really helps us get to the top of the charts. Helps other people find us. Helps, uh, you know, stuff happen. Helps us feel good. That's really what's important. <laughs> Help us feel good. Help us help you feel good. Hell yeah, bro. Give us them warm fuzzies. Give it the warm fuzzies. That's all, that's all we need. That's what we're living for. Them warm and fuzzies. And we read five-star reviews here on this podcast. So if that is a additional uh, incentive for you, then hey, that's, that's what's up. All right, so we will talk spoilers. We're going to talk what's the difference. We're going to talk about themes. We're going to talk about George Clooney some more and his inability to read. All right, after this break. 
And we are back. And you know what that means. It's time to bust a recap. <laughs> oh, well, 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 oobie doobie. Uh, I don't think I want to bust a recap. <laughs> that sounds. I, I mean, are you sure? Like, it's supposed to be enticing. You got to really, like, oh, bring you in. Doobie, doobie. You know? Is sort of the most alluring thing. Yeah, that's a very that was a very good sexy Cab Calloway. Oh. Just like kind of threw her away. Oh, banana dooby dooby gets the people going. Um, so uh, in in the past we've had Dave do the recap. If you would feel so inclined, otherwise I will take on the mantle and do so myself. It's up to you, baby. Sure, like recap the whole film. Or what do you if think? you'd like? You ready to go down this train? Cause it's a coming out of the station. Okay. Oh wait, 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 Dave. Recap the entire movie as sexy Cab Calloway. <laughs> as a but a dooby dooby. No, I won't do that. I feel like I feel like I will stumble upon being very offensive somehow if I go down that road. Okay, so are you ready? Starting from where I stopped before, essentially, is <laughs> these these three chumps coming out of the chain gang, and they uh, come upon uh, a blind guy who's just who's pumping away on the tracks, and he gives them a forecast, a little spiritual forecast that says like, "Hey, you're gonna find some treasure, but not the treasure you think. You're gonna see a cow on the roof, and oh, there's gonna be hijinks ahead of you." And they're like, okay, we're not going to believe you. And they head on down the road. And I might get the order of who they encounter on the way a little mixed up because I forget who they meet first. Is it is it Babyface? Is it that soon? They meet uh, Tommy first. Oh, they meet Tommy first. Uh, Tommy Johnson, who's based off of Robert Johnson, clearly, at the crossroads. And he just sold his soul to the devil and he's looking for a ride. And he also found out a way for them to make a little money on the side as they're on the run from the law. Oh, wait, they go to the cousin first. Yeah. But... The cousin, but the, the not much happens there except the <laughs> barn burns down and they they run away. Anyways, good <laughs> casting on John Turturro's cousin. Looked just like him. Yeah. Except like a little bit more ugly. And then, <laughs> anyway, they meet Tommy Johnson <laughs> They go to record an album with Steven Root. Root, Root, Root! He's my favorite character actor, and I'm always happy to see him. His range is so crazy and wide. So look mm -hmm. look up Steven Root if you don't know who I'm talking about. Anyways, they go to record an album. They're basically like, what sort of music do you want? We do exactly whatever you want our, the music to be. And they're like, hey, we like old-style folk music. So they sing... Uh, as the Soggy Bottom Boys, they go sing the, the Man of Constant Sorrow. And Stephen Root loves it, puts it out into the world, and it becomes a hit without them knowing it. So they move on, and then they encounter... Oh, they, the more bad guys that try to burn down in a barn, and they burn down another barn. And then they're on the road, and Tommy is left, but they're on the road. And then uh, a car comes up, and money's flying out of it. And then they meet this one guy, and he's like, Oh, my name's George Nelson. And I rob stuff. And then he shoots some cows and he's shooting some, some cops that are coming after him and shoot some cows. And then they go and rob a bank. And he's like, yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. And then one person calls him <laughs> babyface, And he's like, I don't love that. Mm, that makes me mad. 
And so then they go and they have a little uh, campfire moment and, and he admits like, you know what? I'm sad. I'm bipolar. And then he goes off and wanders off and you, you don't see him for a little while. So then they go out and then they hear some songs and then they go meet these beautiful babes <laughs> who, are just, <laughs> who are just doing some laundry and singing some songs being very siren like oh odyssey and then they all they give them some drink and then they lay down and they all love it and they're getting all lovey-dovey but then they wake up and they realize john Turturro, oh he's he's not there anymore it's just his clothes what's that in his shirt is it his beating heart no it's a toad Oh, he no. done turned him into a horny toad. So they grab the toad <laughs> and they go and they're like, oh, we better find a wizard or something. And all they do is they find trouble because they find John Goodman and he's got an eye patch over his face and he's he's a cyclops. Once again, the Odyssey. And then they go have a picnic. A lot of picnics in this movie. <laughs> They go have a picnic under a tree, and John Goodman's like, hey, look at this branch. I'm going to use it as a club and hit you over the head with it. So he hits him over the head, and even like George Clooney's like, what? And then gets hit on the head with it, and then he he steals all his money, and he finds a toad, and he squishes the toad. So they're like, oh, he killed our friend. Uh, he stole our money. Let's go see a movie, and they're in a darkened movie. And they, they're in there, and then, like, this chain gang comes in, and it turns out John Turturro's still alive. Yay! Oh, Yay! <laughs> but do not seek the treasure. So they're like, oh, oh no. And then they, they bust John Turturro out of the chain gang, out of the jail, and then they decide to wear blackface for just a moment. Um, and I think it's just to be hidden in the shadows. But what they find is a KKK rally. And then they infiltrate it and they find out that the KKK rally has been run by this one politician who's running for office and this other one who's been well established throughout this movie, but not in my recap. <laughs> that also the Cyclops is there. And also they've got Tommy and they're about to they're about to lynch him. So they go and try to save Tommy and in the process get their get their hoods uncovered. They get found out, they get chased out of there. So, what's revealed is that George Clooney's really just trying to stop his wife from getting married. So he goes find his wife, and he infiltrates it by dressing up as these, like, big, hairy, ZZ-top-looking guys. And then they go in, and it's this big, like, uh, it's this big gala thing. And they, they have to hide as the Soggy Bottom Boys. But when they perform, everyone freaks out because, oh, guess what? That's a super popular album out right now, and they've been super popular, and they don't even realize it. So they start singing, and the one politician's like, no, they're bad, because I am the KKK, and he outs himself, and then he gets in trouble. And so the, the other politician's like, you know, I'm going to be okay with it, because everyone's going with this. So it's like, yeah, these guys are great, and they're pardoned. Everything's free, but the wife still won't take him back, because he needs to get the ring. So he goes to the one place he shouldn't go to, which is back to their old house that's about to be covered because of a dam is being broken and created and it's about to be flooded and they try to find a ring but oh no the bad guy's there and he's gonna hang him and they're singing sad songs and oh he finally gets down on his knees and prays to god and then oh a big flood comes washes them away saves them just out of the clutches and in the end everyone's happily ever after oh that's good that, that was right? great I feel thoroughly recapped. 
Good. I'm glad that was just as entertaining as the movie. No, it wasn't. I think it was. You know, it was like I was living the movie. Ugh, I was like, ooh, everything turned sepia tone. Uh-huh. And it got really dry and hot. And someone ran up and was like, I hate cows. And they shot a bunch of cows. And I was like, why? Why are you making me watch this? So, <laughs> so here's the thing. You know how, Lex, you know how you talked about how, like, they didn't really read the Odyssey. I'm sure they had some, like, I don't think that's entirely true. I bet they read it when they were a kid. <laughs> right. And they were trying to remember moments from the Odyssey. Because... There's like, okay, so the links between, are we at this part now where we talk about yeah. how it's like the Odyssey? Okay. Yeah, it's, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> so the links are like, there's some very obvious ones. Like the main character's name is Ulysses, is the main guy from the Odyssey. Right. And, you know, they, they encounter sirens who then turn one of their people into an animal, into a mm-hmm. toad. That's a lot like, of course, the sirens are famous, but also Circe was another person Ulysses encountered along the way and turned everyone into pigs. So like the pigs, the turning into a toad is very much like that. Um, And then there's also the Cyclops, obviously, and how he's used and how he's a villain. And then there's also the fact that he's going to go back to his family, which is Ulysses' whole thing is to try to get back home to his family and his wife Penelope whose name is shortened to Penny in this so those are like the very clear obvious ones but then there's other ones that are a bit more I don't know a a little bit deeper like like babyface Nelson is actually there was at one point they landed on this island and that uh, Ulysses Ulysses' troop was basically like, hey, there's a bunch of cows here. Let's kill and eat all these cows. And because they did that, they were cursed Mm, and then electrocuted by Zeus. So that's why he gets electrocuted at the end of the movie, which is a lot like him facing the wrath of Zeus, Uh, much like these other characters do. And that's that's a bit more obscure when you first Google it. People aren't talking about that right away. And also the fact that Ulysses, the name... And also, he just keeps calling himself a man of sorrow, full of sorrow and suffering. So the man of constant sorrow, the song, yeah. mm-hmm. is also about, like, Ulysses and the Odyssey. And that's a bit of a deeper, you know, that's a bit of a deeper nod than just, like, than normal. So there's still, it's still there. It's the... Right. What I, what I like about the story is it's not staying too close to the story itself. They're not coming from a war. There's no... They're going back to like I think the name of the town that they're going to is Ithaca still, so yeah, it still has that link. But they're not they're not overdoing it with the links. I think right, and I think that like a couple other ones just for all the active tweeters out there is like yes, they like the the suitors are or the the one fiance uh, right. is a stand-in for all of the line of suitors that come. To try to court Penelope. They also dress as beggars to go yeah. in there, which was a lot like, mm-hmm. yeah, the, those hoggy bottom boys. Uh, though, I guess, yeah. if I remember correctly, Odysseus, like, murders all the suitors. George Clooney's too classy for that, and he just makes him lose right. his job. You also had Ulysses was someone who was very full of himself, very vain, and also didn't 
really believe in the gods too much. And a lot of his faults in the beginning was because he like poo pooed Poseidon. Yeah. And, and he was also just like, you know, kind of full of himself. And that's what George Clooney characters is. I mean, he's very vain. He's a dapper Dan man. And he's also not as spiritual as his two friends, which sometimes saves them. Another thing that isn't really mentioned a lot are the Baptists that they meet. And uh, there's the baptism scene. That's a lot like the Lotus Eaters from the Odyssey, mm-hmm. who like you know fed fed the crew lotuses and they almost stayed with them. But it was uh, it was Ulysses that was like, no, we got to keep moving, we got to get home, and keep them going. So that's a lot like what he did with the Baptists, and also what he kind of keeps going. He doesn't really believe in the spiritual stuff. He doesn't believe in God until the very end when he prays, and then that kind of the flood happens. Yeah. So it's a big arc for him. So that's also a lot like Ulysses kind of believing coming to face the gods in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I had read that also the main, I guess, sheriff character is supposed to be like a stand in for Poseidon. And that's why even though they were pardoned, he's like, those are man's rules. And well, I guess he's, he could also be interpreted as the devil. Yeah. It's kind of set up as the devil, which was the Poseidon of the story. Right. Was the devil. Right. It reminded me a ton of the biker from the Coens Raising Arizona. Like, this seems very much like an archetype that they are super into. This sort of otherworldly, borderline demonic figure that wears the face of a man but relentlessly pursues our protagonist. Right. Seems to be something that pops up a number of times throughout yeah. their work and stuff. Can I say, I want to, there's one thing I really want to say about these pursuers in that, like, they are, they feel intent on just killing these guys as opposed to bringing them back. Like, every barn they would track them down to, they would just set it on fire. As, like, I, I don't, uh, that's not, it's not good policing. <laughs> <laughs> I had a strange thought on this rewatch, and this is kind of my... Okay, I'm I'm just warning everyone. I'm about to don my woke film critic 2020 hat right now. Ooh yeah, here here it I comes. Love that hat. Here it is. It's it's jaunty on my head, and I'm ready to be woke and talk about things. Anyways, I had a strange thought while watching this, and I was worried that it wasn't going to hold up because of you know magical black men are all over this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that could be a problem sometimes, but also like most of the world is magical. And then I realized like this is the funny thing about the story. These characters are black. Oh, like you, know, you notice that too? George Clooney and John Turturro and the main characters, they should be black. Mm-hmm. They should just be p- being played by black actors. I mean, these these actors are great. But it just is weird that there. It almost feels like it was written for black actors, uh-huh. and then white actors played them. Right. I noticed this too for sure, and I want to say it's during the clan rally scene where, like, well, obviously we've been spending time with these characters as depicted, but especially by the time you get to this point in the movie, their faces are very dirty, and it looks like they're all in they've been in blackface for several hours and it's coming off because they wore kind of dirt over their face to sneak into the camp right to to steal john turturro so that's kind of the unintentional 
blackface, but, but then it's, it's like... sort of it's acknowledged explicitly, right? Like there isn't there the one line where the sort of government racist that's part of the clan actually mistakes them for black yeah. men because they have and that's when I had the same thought that you did. Where I went, okay, there's a real chance that this is where this movie completely goes off the rails in that way and does not come back. I mean, yeah, and like I think it's further supported by all of the the other chain gang members being men of color and there's this the moment where they are all where they're about to perform and they're like we're black people uh and he's like we don't like black music and he's like jk we're white people yeah on a more superficial reading you could be like and george clooney always needs his do-rag bruh he needs to keep his hair he needs right. to keep them waves fresh bruh um but that's uh, that's just taking a step back from our woke lens right, we're, putting it, we're putting it back on but like yeah i agree that like i think that it would have been a very powerful story had they been black characters in that like it would have also justified how relentlessly they were pursued yeah like those kind of things like yeah. it's almost like i don't know if you've seen the movie life mm -hmm. with martin lawrence and eddie murphy yes. it's almost like that but instead of like the whole cast being black they were just like all right we're gonna we're gonna do a black movie but we can't sell it internationally so let's put these white guys in like Keep it the same. They'll still get it. They'll feel it. They'll see themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting when I think back on me in 2000 watching this movie. I I know personally, probably with my own bias at that time, I would not. Maybe if it was the Coen brothers, I would still like see it. But I would have weird assumptions if it was starring an all black cast rather than it being white like it was. So it was definitely like marketed towards me. Right. I think is the thing. And I mean, I've grown since then and I'm not saying like, I, it would be nice to see a black version of this, but it was, it was interesting because I didn't expect it. Cause I almost feel like it wasn't offensive in some, and maybe this is, maybe I'm wrong here, but if, to me, it didn't strike as tonally offensive as I thought it was going to be. It just felt like it was weirdly miscast. Right. And that, that was the most offensive part about it. The one that seems kind of like out of time. Like right now. Yeah. Like I can imagine like if this movie had come out now, it could be pretty much exactly the same, but with three black men as the as the leads rather than three white. Yeah. And I would watch that. I'd watch yeah, the fuck too. out of that. For the record, uh, Life came out in 1999, so they were probably uh, in, in not production, but at least uh, in development at the same time. Not saying that the Coens stole the idea, but if, if you were to make that uh, claim, I wouldn't argue. I'm just saying. Yeah, it, it might also be, I don't know, sometimes there's something in the air when movies come out that it tends to be like... Well, bugs and bugs life and ants are, are direct them trying to like have a race, but there's other right. movies that are so similar, like the uh, Armageddon, like and Deep, Deep Impact, Impact and Armageddon. Yeah, yeah, they just like they're not fighting to compete; they just happen to come up with the same idea right. at the same time. I don't know this it, something that still holds up about this movie that I was still happy about. It just felt weirdly forced at points because even that blackface, that's like forced in there 
there's no need for them to think that they're just for that line like the colored guard is colored right they really want to say that line and when they when they call that out so explicitly on the one hand you you maybe could be more inclined to say oh okay well they they know they're aware so maybe that makes this a little less weird but at the same time once it is called out explicitly i can't not a be thinking about it in the moment and b i can't not now be projecting that back over the entire movie that i've been watching but it's also hard to think of this movie without those performances by those three actors well, like, right. that that makes the whole movie to me right aside from the like subtext of it it also just can be a like you know a depression era thing in that like mm-hmm. everyone was suffering <laughs> right. um so you could effectively just you know, transpose this this idea of southernness, which, like, if you take demographic-wise, the South is very black for assorted reasons, which I will not go into, uh, that have to do with Slavery? redlining and segregation oh. and things of that sort, but yes! <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, beyond the racial subtext, it's also just, like, a very southern tale, which I think is why it... Uh, kind of skirts that line of being like, guys, this might be problematic. And it's just like, okay, cool. It feels like it exists within that time. And you can kind of displace your your own association with it. If you watch Sullivan's Travels, which was made, you know, in the 30s, it has like a, you know, chain gang in it where they go to. Yeah, 1941 is when it came out. But it has a chain gang in it. And it's, you know weirdly mostly white you know when like the chain gains of the time were black not because like yeah black people were committing more crimes but because they were being falsely uh, incarcerated in order to do the 13th amendment slavery <laughs> blah 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 yeah so i've seen the 13th i've still got my hat on hell um, yeah fucking bring it <laughs> So I felt like two things when I was like, oh, man, this movie starts off with an all black chain game. And I was like, oh, do I not remember this as well as I thought I did? <laughs> but then I was thinking like, well, at least they're like acknowledging that stuff is happening during that time and that there is a sense of the racism is there. Yeah. It's not like a perfectly white thing. The Ku Klux Klan is a bad guy. It just kind of feels like like you were saying it at least exists in that world. It is a shame that the only, you know, black characters that are in this are kind of side characters that don't have a lot of lines right. and are to be singing, but it still feels like it's somewhere in that world. Yeah. At least. And I will say that like I those are aspects I appreciate in that like it it could have just as easily been a all white chain gang. So just having the existence of that racism being in there. And also like here are two behind the scenes things that I liked. In that, like, the opening song was originally recorded from a real chain gang. And so the Coens tracked down the, one of the people who were on it and were like, we're going to use your voice. Here's money. And I appreciated that. Oh, great. And then also the the men at the end are an actual, like, I think they're part of a quintuplet. Quintup, yeah. Yeah. Nope. Which quartet? That's the word. Um, They're part of a quartet and they just took three of them because there were three graves. But I like that those men also got money for doing their bit. Um, And I also like that there would be no Soggy Bottom Boys without the Tommy character. One thing that I saw 
in some analysis of this film too was when it comes to the music, most of the music was from Appalachia, not from Alabama, except for like the chain gang stuff. And some people interpret that as like the, from, from the Odyssey, one of the things that is deemed like the only way you can uh, go home is if you take an oar and take it as far inland uh, enough. So people don't recognize what an oar is and then create like a new temple of Poseidon there. Okay. So that was one of his goals. So in that way, there was one interpretation that actually taking Appalachian music and bringing it to the South was a way to kind of establish a new temple of Poseidon, like introduce this ore yeah. into a world that doesn't, intru- that doesn't know it well, which was a stretch, but interesting. I mean, I, I dig that interpretation in that it just seems cool. I have no further commentary about it. Just seems cool. Yeah. It's still a good movie, though. And it's also good to see. I also love it when they make John Goodman a bad guy. I think he's great at being a bad guy. And you see him enjoying it so much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, he was eating every moment that he was on screen. <laughs> Just like, not literally i guess in a way he was literally eating but also he was just chewing the scenery like i love his introduction that he could have turned the other way but he chooses to look at them over his shoulder in the most like ominous and inconvenient way possible yeah um and he and it like they do a nice job of reprising that when he smells the Dapper Dan, right. but also just how uh, he is almost like a, a reflection of the uh, Ulysses character, the George Clooney's Ulysses, in that he is right. also super fast talking, very much willing to take advantage of people, but he has the brute strength instead of his golden tongue. And so I, I love, oh, bro. And when he smashed that, that fucking frog, I got so sad. Yeah, The way the Coens use John Goodman, I've thought, has always been brilliant because he has this very kind of like lovable, all-American, kind of wholesome, likable guy quality. And they cast him as just these total bastards, like Barton Fink being a perfect example. Um, His performance in Barton Fink is utterly fucking spellbinding. And I guess worth noting as a sidebar, I want to say Barton Fink is also the first time the Coens collaborated with cinematographer Roger Deakins, one of the best to ever do it. They had worked together a bunch of times before this, and this was, uh, I want to say one, two, three, four. It's like their fifth collaboration together. This is also, and we've we've talked very briefly about sort of the general aesthetic of the movie, but I also think this is a really great looking movie. And it, it got a lot of credit at the time, but it sort of faded from the conversation. I think this was one of, if not the first, maybe the first movie to be released that was fully digitally color graded. So everything that they did to achieve that, that sort of general, like the sepia aesthetic, for example, like that was all done inside of computers instead of by hand, which had not really like all it's so strange to think like all of these technologies that we 100% take for granted they had to start somewhere and it was actually pretty recently like in fact it wasn't for another two years that uh, a movie would be shot like a feature would be shot fully digitally. Um, which I find kind of fascinating. It would take another, it would take uh, George Lucas making the second Star Wars movie. It would take uh, Attack of the Clones to give us a fully digital feed. Yeah, I've been, I've been watching movies like pretty much every Sunday night with a group of friends just over Zoom. Like we watch them all together and then mm-hmm. kind of write back and forth. And sometimes we choose like kind of weird, not good movies and just, just so we could talk over them as we watch them. <laughs> so I was surprised recently watching Hitch with Will Smith 
and Kevin James that there was film grain in it. It just doesn't <laughs> feel like the type of... It feels so weird to watch a movie that has, like, from the 2000s that still had film grain because they're not shooting digitally yet. And most everything is digital now. And if it's not, then it's right. unique. Then it's like Paul Thomas Anderson or something. Right. But now, of course, you have a ton of people who will shoot digital and then go back and manually add film grain into it right. so that it looks right. like they shot film. Mm-hmm. But so, yes, I, I guess I wanted to shout out Deacons and I wanted to shout out the aesthetics of this movie. Also, you know what? As a total stray thought, two things um, regarding cast members and performances in this movie. One, uh, I want to say this was because I would have been 10 or 11 years old when this movie came out. This was almost certainly the first time I saw Charles Durning where he wasn't trying to murder and eat Kermit the Frog. Um, <laughs> he is uh, a wonderful character actor who also uh, has an army background. He, he passed away in 2012 and is buried in Arlington. So I think that's interesting. But we talked last week on this podcast about Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. And we were talking about the actor Toshiro Mifune. And I was talking, Tari, to you about how, in my estimation, Toshiro Mifune is one of the most influential actors of all time that does not get uh, his due, his credit for being as influential as he was to the sort of style of leading man performers that would come after, uh, just as much as Brando, I said. And I feel like maybe more than in any of his other work, George Clooney has intense Toshiro Mifune energy in this movie. Mm. First of all, it's, yes, the way Deacon shoots him, but also there's so much. Now, he gets to be much more chatty, of course, than Toshiro Mifune is usually when you see him in Kurosawa movies, certainly in Throne of Blood. But it's his eyes and it's the way, yes, this is a man. Yes. He's got the skin of a man and he, he operates, he maneuvers through man's world, but this dude feels so like, um, uh, if not a force of nature, then something far more animalistic, something a lot more wily, something like he feels, you know what? He feels a lot like Clooney feels a lot like the coyote. He feels a lot like wily coyote to me. <laughs> and I think a lot of that quality you can trace when you're talking about sort of, uh, leading men actors appearing on camera. I think you can trace that directly back to a style that was chiefly pioneered by Toshiro Mifune. So there you go. Case in point, QED. I I proved myself right from last week with evidence. There you go past me. You're welcome past me. Thanks, present me. It's also his his arched eyebrows. (laughs) Ooh, look at those arched eyebrows. They're they're like triangles, his eyebrows. Also, I feel like I feel like the, he, they're both from the nation of handsome. You know? <laughs> they both have that like handsome look to them that all handsome people kind of have. Right. It's in the it's in the eyes for sure. Like he really does feel like um, a Clark Gable meets Tashiro Mifune to me in this movie, which I feel like if what you're trying to do is establish yourself as a movie star, that's dang near the greatest compliment I feel I can pay you. Yeah. Well, we are running short on time. So do you guys have any last thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, I like this film and you should listen to the soundtrack a lot. (laughs) It's great. Uh, Lex? Look, I I am very much uh, the perfect demographic to be very, very enamored of the Coen brothers and their work. So it came as no surprise to me that revisiting this was a huge pleasure. I did, though, as we discussed, there were a couple of moments where I started to get a little trepidatious. Like, is this thing going to completely fall apart because X or Y element in the in the past sort of 20 years or so we've reinterpreted and it, it really will be uncomfortable to watch and stuff. And I feel like 
the Coens are able to walk right up to that line without crossing it. So there are times where the movie actually, for sort of a slick, upbeat studio product, almost feels a hair dangerous as well, um, which is something that I feel like you don't get in too many studio products now. But I think, yeah, I think it's a great, fun movie. I agree with Dave wholeheartedly. Check that soundtrack out. There's a reason that soundtrack sold so crazy, crazy well. But it's great. And I encourage people, if you have not checked out more of the Coen Brothers' work and you want to do so, this is a very good place to start, especially because I feel like Big Lebowski was sort of a a coda on one phase of their career, and this very much kicked off a new phase that would last them, I think, till they made No Country for Old Men. And I do think that the movies they made in this period often get very short shrift. I think if your quote-unquote worst movies look like Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers, you're doing fine. You know what I mean? Like you don't have, you don't have anything to be ashamed of and stuff. By the way, if you want to, I think intolerable cruelty actually gets a lot of crap. It shouldn't because I I think, but I think what you have to do is you have to do your homework and this isn't saying this isn't great. I don't think every movie should be like this, but with intolerable cruelty, the only way you're going to like intolerable cruelty is if you watch as many screwball comedies as you can before you right. watch Intolerable Cruelty. So watch, like, Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, all of those, like, zany, Capra, Sturgis, screwball comedies, and then go back to Intolerable Cruelty, watch it, and then be like, oh, I see what they were doing. They were making these specific movies. So right. that's the only reason it's good, but it doesn't make it so it's like, you know, I wouldn't suggest that would be a role model for most movie making. Or watch it first and then go back to those movies and being like, oh, I'm filling in the gaps. Ah, the gaps. <laughs> that sounds aggressive and filthy. <laughs> I'm filling in the gaps. <laughs> the gaps. <laughs> My sensibilities have been offended to an egregious degree, sir. Well, would you say that you are a man of sorrow? Uh, I wouldn't have before, but yes, I, in fact, see trouble all of my days, at least this day, for sure, especially this day. Well, uh, let's bring this day to an end. Dave, thank you for being here. You're welcome. If someone wanted to talk to you more about movies or they wanted to, you know, see you do cool stuff... Where could they find you? Oh, I could tell you right now where you could find me. You could find me on the Instagrams and the Twitters at the MR Dave Child, Mr. Dave Child. Or go to DaveChild.com because my name, it's Dave Child. Wait, what was that name again? It's Dave Child. And Lex, (laughs) where can people find you? Dave, earlier you commented on Stephen Root's range as an actor, and I do think it's funny that more than once he's been cast as a blind racist. Yeah, yeah. But so, yes, uh, if you want to talk to me about the phenomenal range of actor Stephen Root or really anything else, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael, and I also do a podcast with my partner, Marianne Ramish. We call it Friends with Benefits. That's right, kids. We are taking a look at all nine billion seven hundred million eight hundred twenty five thousand and four episodes of the cultural juggernaut that is the TV series Friends. Marianne is a big fan, and I am to date not at all a big fan of this program, but I am having a very good time talking to her about it from a fan perspective and from a critical perspective. Uh, the show is called Friends with Benefits, and you can check that out uh, wherever you find your podcast. You found this one. You can find that one, too. Uh, it's streaming now on HBO Max, so watch Friends and, and listen to us. It'll be great. It'll be fun. We love you. Join us. Uh, Tari J, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. Yeah, baby, follow me if you want to see me retweet dumb TikToks. Or, uh, I don't know, dumb shit about fucking d- d- anime. Uh, <laughs> I watch anime. <laughs> do, do you watch anime? <laughs> then follow me. I watch anime. Fill it in the gaps. <laughs> but... Most importantly, you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. And don't forget, next week, we will be continuing our theme of Cinema Lit 101 with the BBC's redoing or retelling or adaptation of Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock series, which is known as Luther. Hell yeah, you thought I was doing Sherlock? Fuck that show. We're doing Luther season one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Black Sherlock, bitch. Um, I thought you were going to talk about elementary. <laughs> Damn! Make sure to tune in for that. Uh, once again, thank you, Dave. This has been super fun. We love having you on. I love you. Aww what i needed to hear today so uh show your love to dave make sure to follow all his things enjoy his great humor on all the things that he does uh and until then this has been the retrospective that is introspective and now you have a new perspective I said a slogan, so I'm a sales tool now. Yeah. Transactional commerce hurts me.